we were walking from a man's house over in Middle Tennessee. His uh, son had just been buried. Son that struggled so much to try to do right. Finally was killed in a fatal automobile accident. And this sorrowing father said to me right as I was getting in my car to leave, if I could only know that my boy's in heaven, I, I, think I, could, I think I could bear it. President Dwight D. Eisenhower served two terms as president of this great nation. He was supreme commander of the Allied forces in World War II. He was the president that initiated this uh, interstate highway system. He was dying. And two times he asked this question, can I go to heaven? Can I go to heaven? There was a man years ago who paraded himself across this country, ridiculing the Bible, lecturing. He had a famous lecture on the mistakes of Moses. Someone said it probably would have been more interesting to have heard a lecture on the mistakes of Ingersoll. But Ingersoll, Robert Ingersoll and his brother had an agreement that the survivor would give a funeral oration at uh, the brother's funeral. And Robert Ingersoll survived his brother. His brother was being buried in Arlington Cemetery in Washington. And so here's the man now that had ridiculed the word of God the man that had talked about the mistakes of Moses, he's standing by his brother's grave, and he said, life is a narrow veil between the two and cold, barren peaks of eternity. We strive in vain to look beyond the heights. We call aloud, and the only answer is the echo of a wailing cry. From the voiceless lips of the unreplying dead, there comes no word. But in the night of death, hope sees a star, and faith hears the rustle of a wing. It's one thing to stand in a classroom and ridicule faith in God and ridicule the Bible. It's, it's quite different if you're standing by the open grave of your mother or your brother or your father or your child. When we think about the need to know that we're going to heaven when this life is over. Now, this life is going to end. I'm telling you what you know. It's going to either end by death or the second coming of Jesus Christ, but it is going to end. And if you could put eternity in terms of a time frame, a hundred years from now, every person in this audience in all probability will be out there in eternity with the realization, ah, I shall be welcomed into the beauty of the eternal glory of God or the horror of hell is staring my soul in the face and there's nothing that can be done about it. It's fixed. I am forever lost. Let us all appreciate the fact that's not what God wants for any of us. I know what God wants for you and me. He wants us to be saved. That's written First 1 Timothy 2, 4. God will have all people, literally all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now that's what God wants. And if you don't think God really wanted you to go to heaven, why do you suppose he would let his son leave the beauty and security of his throne and come and identify with us running the risk in that incarnation, they call it, uh, of the temptation of the evil one and, and all of the liabilities that were associated with him 
condescending to men of low estate. Why did God let him endure all of that? If he didn't want us to go to heaven. Furthermore, I promise you, God does not want his children to live in a smog of doubt or in the grip of fear or under a cloud of uncertainty. It is no compliment to Jesus Christ, my Savior, for me to doubt that I can go to heaven. Because we've already noted from Hebrews 2, 9 and 10, he came from glory to take us to glory. That he might bring many sons unto glory. That's written. It's no compliment to him for me to say, well, I'm not sure I can even go. When he came, so I could go. And while it's true that there are well-meaning people who have been taught and therefore sincerely believe that once you are saved, you could never be lost, I could never believe that. As long as I have passages like Hebrews 3, 12, and 13 in my Bible, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I could never believe that once I'm saved, that it's just impossible for me to be lost. They used to call it the final perseverance of the saints or the impossibility of apostasy. I can't believe it and believe 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. But I want to promise you something. The possibility of apostasy should never be equated with the probability of apostasy. And I'm going to take you to a passage in your Bible that will prove to any good and honest heart that God wants us to go to heaven and we can know if we are going or not. So please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I want us just to glance down and key on verse 11. And then we'll come back and put it all together. But right now, just key, please, on verse 11. The apostle said, If you do these things, you shall never fall, and so shall an entrance be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to to reread that verse in light of the idea that you, once saved, can never be lost. Now, now remember, it's not in your text. I'm just reading it from that perspective, assuming that that doctrine is true. He says, if you do these things, you shall never fall. Why, certainly you cannot fall. See that little if clause in there? If you do these things, you shall never fall. Why didn't he say, you're not going to fall anyway? Because we can fall, but we don't have to fall. So I want us to key on this idea. If we do these things, we'll never fall, and so shall an entrance be ministered unto us abundantly. The the entrance will be given to us. It'll be ministered to us. And it's going to be an abundant entrance. We're not just going to barely squeeze through the pearly gates before they slam closed. We will have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we need to really appreciate, in case anyone is thinking, why, back in the first century, certainly they could have this kind of assurance and confidence. Because, see, they didn't have to grapple with things like we have to deal with. So it's, it's so very different in the first century and the 21st century. Let me just remind us of some of the things they did have to struggle with. So we start in 1 Peter 1, 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and with. So we start in 1 Peter 1, 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Now please watch this next line. 
having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now that word translated escape is a very interesting word in the original. It's a compound word. The stem of the word means to flee. And you put the prefix with it, it's from. Fleeing from. And what better word could be employed to identify escaping from the lust and the corruption and pollution of the culture or society. He used the same concept over in the latter part of chapter 2. He said, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it's happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog has turned his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Escape, escape. Do we imagine that back in the first century everyone was just so good and holy and righteous? Well, to read the Bible if we do. They had lust back in the first century. They had people who needed to escape from the lust that was so prevalent in first century society. Now granted, we have to cope with the same problem in this society. This society is burdened with lust, uncontrolled passion. And furthermore, it's being preached I find it very interesting over in 2 Peter 2.19 when he talks about an effort that was made to seduce the people of God and to pull them away from the Lord and back out into a world of sin. Listen to the apostle. He said, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. They promise you liberty. You think about all the promises that Hollywood has been making to the American people. You know, it really doesn't matter how you live. There are no consequences. Extramarital sex, no problem. Can they make a movie without preaching that? Can they make a movie without blaspheming the name of God Almighty? I'm telling you, folks. The argument is still being made the way it was being made back in the first century. You can live any way you want to, and there are no consequences. That is a lie straight from the devil. There are consequences. Now, you think about this. Of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. Have you ever worked with alcoholics? I've worked with a lot of alcoholics. I guess that's one reason I detest alcohol. I've spent too much time struggling with people who've been enslaved by it. I remember a man, he was managing the largest funeral home at the time in Memphis, Tennessee. I was trying to help him. And one time he told me, and this is a quote, he said, Tom, I would give my right arm to be freed from this thing. End of quote. You tell me that a drug addict is a free person. Have you ever worked with them? Do you know what word is used in the Bible to identify a woman that's enslaved to sexual immorality? What about a man? You know the concept that's used in the Bible to talk about a man that's enslaved to sexual immorality? Well, sure you do. Are these free people? I'll not reflect on your intelligence by answering that. He says they promise you liberty of all the incredible things. They are enslaved to lust. Up in verse 14, he says they have eyes full of adultery. And yet they're promising you, you know, no consequences. Do anything you want to do. A few years ago, there was a fellow that wrote a song, and somebody had the audacity to record that thing. It said, I want to live fast and love hard and die young. 
Now you can summarize that philosophy with one word, stupidity. That's stupidity. But I'll guarantee you one thing, if you want to die young, just do what that song is saying right there. The king, they called him, had a song, I did it my way. You did it your way and wiped yourself out at the age of 42. I I don't want to do it that way myself, you know. But this old idea, no consequences, live any way you want. I'm telling you folks, this is not a new problem. They had to struggle with that problem back in the first century. You say, I know, but man, we got all these various religious doctrines. People are confused. They turn on the television. One fellow's preaching one thing. Another fellow's preaching another thing. So how can the average person on the street even know what is right and what is wrong? They didn't have that kind of problem. Okay, then please listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 1. But there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction, and many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. There is a way of truth that is outlined very plainly and clearly in the Word of God. It's a highway, as the old prophet Isaiah in 35 verse 8 said it would be. I mean, it's clearly marked in the Scripture. That, that way that Jesus said has a straight gate. It's a narrow way, but it leads to life. There's another way. It has a broad gate. Walk on in. It it's a, has a wide gate. It's a broad way. Walk on in, and you can walk straight to hell down that road. There's a way. And he says... You brethren, this is first century now. There are going to be false teachers among you. They're going to confuse you if, you're not, if you don't know the way of truth. I can understand why the average person today would raise the question of, of Pilate. You know, what is truth? This preacher says this, another preacher says that. What is truth? It's like a man one time in Kentucky in fact, it's about 2 o'clock one morning. Uh, we were baptizing some people. I'd been trying to get him to obey the gospel. He said, Holland, has it ever dawned on you that you might be wrong? I said, sure. But how would I ever know if I'm right? I'll have to go to the Word of God and read what I do in the Bible and do that to know that I'm right, the same thing that you'll have to do. He was not baptized that night. In fact, that meeting ended and he was not baptized. Two, three years later, I went to a nearby congregation to start a meeting, drove up. Man came rushing to my car with a big smile on his face. He said, guess what I have done? I said, you've obeyed the gospel, right? He said, I sure did. And he was a happy man. But the point is, if you want to get out of the confusion... Get into the Word. Get into the Word. That is your hope. The way of truth. But man, don't you understand that four of every five adult Americans has bought into relativism? Well, I read that the Barnard Research Institute had demonstrated that. I know that it's being taught all over the land. You pick up a book like uh, the late Dr. Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind, and, and the first line in chapter 1 still amuses me, and, and this is a quote. There's one thing the professor in the university can be absolutely sure of, that every student entering the university believes, or at least says he believes, that everything is relative. You can be absolutely sure about that. A nephew of mine was in a school in Alabama and the teacher made this assertion. Anybody who says he's absolutely sure about anything is a fool. And a student raised his hand and said, are you sure about that? And this fellow said, I am positive. That's when relativism meets itself coming back. If somebody asserts, well, everything is relative, 
sounds to me like you've made a rather absolutist observation there. You know, everything is, is relative. I, I'm well aware. Believe you me, I have been introduced to the idea of relativism. And down in the inner working of relativism is a repudiation of knowledge. I remember a professor who once said, one man said, I'm not sure I could know anything. If I knew anything, I'm not sure I could tell it. If I told it, I'm not sure anybody could understand it. I said, well, it seems to me like he was inconsistent on three points. He knew that he might not know, and he told it, and he assumed we would understand it when he told it. You meet yourself coming back with this prominent philosophy of relativism, but I will promise you the religious world has had a healthy dose of it. I'm talking about the religious world generally, and it comes out in what's called postmodernism. And postmodernism up front repudiates absolutes and argues that language doesn't really have meaning. There is no objective meaning to language and that morals and ethics are determined by a society of people and they can change those at their own wish. The religious world, unfortunately, and I'm, I'm speaking generally, has had a good dose of postmodernism. But Jesus said, you'll know the truth John 8, 32, and the truth shall make you free. I'm just saying, in spite of lust, in spite of sensuous people, in spite of all the propaganda in the first century to try to deceive and seduce the people of God, in spite of all the false teachings that were done, the false philosophies, no wonder Paul would say in Colossians 2 and 8, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Philosophy is a good word. It just means to love wisdom. But the philosophy that you had better be careful about is human philosophy. I remember a philosophy teacher telling us one time who a philosopher is. He said, I'm going to tell you who a philosopher is. He said he's a blind man in a dark cellar at midnight looking for a black cat, which he isn't sure is in there in the first place. And if you dabble around much in human philosophy, you know the man is pretty accurate right there. But in spite of the philosophy of relativism, in spite of the philosophy of humanism, in spite of the philosophy of secularism, in spite of the philosophy of materialism, Jesus said, you know the truth. The truth should make you free. So I'm just saying to us, if we imagine, oh yeah, they, they could know they were going to heaven because they didn't have any problems to deal with. Oh no, they had basically the same kinds of problems that we have to deal with. But we can still have assurance that we're going to heaven. Now I'm going to give you in the second place three steps into heaven. Three steps into heaven from 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, uh, His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called you. See that? called you unto glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust and beside this giving all diligence add to your faith virtue virtue knowledge to knowledge temperance temperance patience to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity love for if these things be in you and abound they make you that you should neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged or some translations say cleansed from his old sins wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your call or calling there we have it again make your call or your calling an election sure for if you do these things you shall never fall and so shall an entrance be now we're back to verse 11 so shall an entrance be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ step one listen to the call of God and respond that's the first step 
listen to God calling you. Every person in this audience right now or every person who may listen to this later who has become a child of God did so because they listened to God call them. I find it interesting that the Apostle Peter, the same one that wrote that epistle we're studying here, preached that gospel sermon in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. First time in all history. The gospel had been proclaimed in all of its beauty and fullness. And when those people heard that the Jesus that they had crucified had been resurrected from the dead and was both Lord and Christ, they were cut to their heart. They were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. There it is, Acts 2.39. As many as the Lord our God shall call. And on that day, he called about 3,000 people. That day. Because Peter proclaimed to them the word of the Lord. And the inspired historian Luke tells us in verse 41, they that gladly received his word. Now, are you picking up on the means that God uses to call? They that gladly received his word were baptized. They that gladly received his word were baptized. Why? Because that is the means that God uses to call us to himself. When Peter wrote that first epistle in 1 Peter 1.15, he said, For as he who hath called you is holy, he's what? He's called you. And he's a holy God. As he who hath called you is holy, so you be holy in all conversation or manner of life. And then over in chapter 2, verse 9, he said, you are a holy nation, a chosen generation, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness. There it is again. It's all through your New Testament. We read the other night, Romans 8 and 28. Paul said, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to those who are the called. It's, It's all through here. God calls, God calls, God calls. He's calling you. And all of us who've answered the call are his people. Because we gladly received the word and we were baptized. Just like we were taught from the Bible to believe and do. So, there's no doubt if you read 2 Thessalonians 2 and 14, when the apostle said, He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, no mistake about it. It's not hard to understand. God certainly calls us, but he calls us by the gospel. And if you're sitting right now in this assembly and there is in your mind the realization, you know, I can't go to heaven the way I'm living right now. I'm going to be lost in hell if I keep pursuing this way of life. And my only hope is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can get me into heaven. I mean, he said it, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But don't you believe that certainly good people who've embraced an Eastern religion that are honest and sincere... Don't you believe they can go to heaven? Not if I believe Jesus. Don't you think God wants them to go to heaven? Sure does. But Jesus said, I'm the way. Now, don't you believe good, honest Muslims can go to heaven? Not through Islam. They'll have to believe in Jesus and obey the Son of God. If he told the truth, and I affirm he told the truth. 
You know, you go up to John 14 and start reading that, and you've heard this many times. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I love this next statement. If it were not so, I would have told you. See it? He told the truth. And then a little later in that very chapter when he said, I am the way to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. It's a matter of believing Jesus, trusting Jesus, or not doing it. And I trust him. No, I don't want anybody to be lost in hell. But I know the only one that can rescue us is the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to answer God's call. Step one. Now, step two. Let's go down to this statement when he said, you forgot or you have forgotten that you were purged or cleansed, some translations say, cleansed from your old sins. That's step two. I have to be cleansed. Now, I can rationalize. I can deny. I can blame somebody else until I get to judgment. No passing the buck in judgment. No blaming somebody else in judgment. I'll give account for myself. You'll give account for yourself in that day. And so I can't say, well, you know, I, yeah, I guess uh, I'm a sinner, but, but really it, it was my parents' fault or my grandparents' fault or, or the elders. Or, or the, find somebody and blame them. We live in that kind of culture. In fact, America has become such a society that Charles Sykes would write a book about a nation of victims. Who's responsible for anything anymore? It's somebody else. In fact, America has become such a society that Charles Sykes would write a book about a nation of victims. Who's responsible for anything anymore? It's somebody else's problem. It's not my fault. I'll excuse myself. I'll tell you, that won't work in the day of judgment. If I believe the Bible, I know it won't work, and I believe the Bible. So I read Romans 14, 11, and 12. As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall come. In fact, America has become such a society that Charles Sykes would write a book about a nation of victims. Who's responsible for anything anymore? It's somebody else's problem. It's not my fault. I'll excuse myself. I'll tell you, that won't work in the day of judgment. If I believe the Bible, I know it won't work, and I believe the Bible. So I read Romans 14, 11, and 12. As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall come. of men do not bring the cleansing. The sinner's prayer does not bring the cleansing. Only one thing will bring the cleansing, the blood of the Lamb. That's why we sing that old song. What can wash away my sins? We sing the response. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. One of my favorite songs is an old, old hymn. It says, uh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. I have to be cleansed by the blood of the Son of God. You say, well, if I believe that, I need to know how I can reach that blood. I'm going to ask you to do a little study with me. Just, just a moment. I want you to compare four scriptures in your New Testament. The first is in a great declaration of praise to our Lord Jesus Christ from the pen of the Apostle John over on the Isle of Patmos. In Revelation 1, 5, he said, He washed us from our sins in his own blood. 
Now, please compare that to what Ananias told a sinful man named Saul of Tarsus in Acts twenty-two sixteen. He said to Saul, why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Wait a minute. Which is it? Be baptized and wash away your sins or wash your sins, have them washed away in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, second study. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, 28. He said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. See, blood shed for remission of sins. But you know, we read just a minute ago from Acts 2, 38, Peter said, repent and be baptized for remission of sins. Now, which is it? Repent and be baptized for remission of sins or his blood washes away our sins. It's not either or. It's a connection. These things are correlated. Now, here's the correlation. I'm going to introduce this passage if you want to look at it from Romans chapter 6. I want to introduce it by just asking you this question. If we just read from the scripture, from the word of God, how we can reach the blood of Christ, would, would that be fair to you and would, would it be fair to the word of God? So we're just going to read, let the Holy Spirit through this inspired book tell us how we can get to the Lord's death where we can have our sins cleanse or we can be cleansed from our sins Paul said what should we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound God forbid how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death you got it hadn't you I'm, I'm putting that you got it in there obviously Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. You're seeing it, aren't you? I'm putting that in there. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should no longer serve sin. I'll tell you one reason I'm not going to explain that. I'm just going to ask you to believe it. Just believe it. That's step number two. Be cleansed from your sin by the blood of the Lamb. Now we're ready for step three. Step three, you add what many times are identified as the Christian graces. Seven things. Look at them. In your faith or add your faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, Godliness, brotherly kindness, charity, or love. Now you pick out from that list of seven the impossible one for you. I can't go to heaven because I can't be patient. Oh, I just can't be patient. I still have one brother living. Love that man. He survived the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. I hadn't been a Christian very long. When uh, he was in that battle, my father and I lived alone. My mother had passed away a few years before that. First time I ever did any real hard down praying. I'm going to tell you, we didn't hear from my brother for several days. We didn't know if he's dead or alive. But he had a little old toe-headed brother that was down on his knees and praying to God for him. I mean, you know, this pleading type of prayer, imploring, beseeching type of praying. My brother was not the most patient man I've ever met. But his wife came down with Alzheimer's and he's trying to take care of her. And I've never seen anybody more patient than he's become. And 
My nephew and I have talked about it. My brother's daughter and I have talked about it. It's evident. Just so patient, so patient. Yeah, you can develop patience. Just go through the list. Now pick you out one of those things and say, now that's that one. You know, I, I could never be kind. There are some people that I honestly believe were born in the objective case and the kickative mood. There are a few people I am confident Dale Carnegie would love to have slapped. Have you ever had a person give you a piece of their mind? You know, I've been the recipient of that a few times in my life. And and here's the way I deal with it now. If a person starts doing that, I start thinking, you shouldn't give me any of that. You obviously need all of that. Don't give me any of it. You can be kind. Anybody can be kind if they want to be. Just treat the other person the way you want to be treated. You know, don't they call that the golden rule, Matthew 7, 12? We can be kind. I went into a restaurant in Athens, Alabama, one one of the low days of my life. I went into a restaurant, and a lady took my order, was so kind. She had no earthly idea what it meant to me that day for that woman to be so kind. And I took out one of my cards, and it was not one of those where normally, you know, they come in Serbia and all of that. You put in your order and you get it and you eat and you go on your way. But I wrote on the back of my card as I gave her a tip. I needed somebody to be kind to me today. And you were that person. You know, when I read that description, that verbal picture of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, one of the salient characteristics in her tongue is the law of kindness. You got a law, a rule here. She is a kind person. I'm I'm submitting to you, you will not find anything in that list that you have to say, I'll never be able to do that. And so I can't go to heaven. And I promise you something else. When you look at that list, everything is stated in a relative way. You can't quantify those things. Okay, add knowledge. How much? You couldn't quantify that. I knew a family in Middle Tennessee. They had a 16-year-old boy. They knew he knew what he needed to do to obey the gospel. But he wouldn't do it. And and, and it was a grief to them. What will happen to my boy if he's killed or if he dies and never obeys the gospel? Well, a meeting, summer meeting came. Brother W.A. Bradfield, the late Brother Bradfield, was holding the meeting. Their son walked down the aisle, sweetened his lips with the loving name of the Son of God, and that night was baptized into Christ. And the next morning, he was backing an H. Farmall tractor into a shed. They still don't know what happened. But some way his foot slipped off that clutch and he fell in back of that tractor and it crushed him to death. But the thing that consoled his parents as they grieved, what if that had happened before he had been baptized into Christ? Now this young man obviously had not had time to develop these qualities. That is so very important. But it doesn't mean he can't go to heaven because they're all stated in a relative way. How much knowledge, how much virtue, how much kindness, how much brotherly love. In fact, America has become such a society that Charles Sykes would write a book about a nation of victims. Who's responsible for anything anymore? It's somebody else's problem. It's not my fault. I'll excuse myself. I'll tell you, that won't work in the day of judgment. 
If I believe the Bible, I know it won't work, and I believe the Bible. So I read Romans 14, 11, and 12. As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall drift down the stream of life. Take the metaphor of the Christian soldier. You know, living the Christian life is a battle. Like a man stood in my office door one day, and he said, Tom, I have to struggle every day. I said, come on in. Have a seat, man. You're in good company in here. We all have to fight to do right but my heavenly father wants me to go to heaven he wants you to go to heaven and there are three steps to get us there step number one listen to God call you and when you hear that call that's the time to respond here's what the Bible says today is the day of salvation now is the accepted time. It's so easy to say, well, things are not just right for some reason. Maybe, maybe tomorrow. Maybe Sunday. Maybe one day next week. Have you ever heard the line of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these it might have been? Today's the day, now's the time. Because the longer you live away from answering God's call, sin is going to have a greater opportunity to harden your heart. The longer you put this off, this dangerous world in which we live is going to have the possibility of snatching you into eternity and then you could never do what God wants you to do in His call. I'll mention one other thing. I still believe what this book teaches about the second coming of Christ. I know we've had these assertions and we've had these false prophets who've set times and all of this, that, and the other. Jesus said, of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only, and I believe what he said. And it comes with poor grace for some fellows. I've got it all worked out, you know. I know when he's... They don't know any such thing. But I'll promise you this much. One of every 25, on an average, one of every 25 verses right here in this New Testament teaches that Christ will come again. I mean, it's hard just to open anywhere in the Bible and not read about the Lord coming again. I'll just give you one quick example, Hebrews 9, 27 to 28. It's pointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for him shall he appear the second time. He shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He's not bringing a sin offering when he comes a second time. He's coming to receive to eternal glory those that he left glory one day to come to this earth to take to glory. He's coming to receive them, to receive us. You know, we sing some good gospel about the knowledge of heaven. You know, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And all these songs about the assurance, the confidence, We sang one last night. I love that song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. 1983, one Sunday morning in March, my father stood up to teach the auditorium class, the church where I had grown up, really. They had just sung that song. Then they went to their classes. And some of the people that were there told me, this is what happened. He said, your dad got up to teach the Sunday morning Bible class, and he opened with this observation. There was only one perfect person that ever lived on this earth, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he fell dead. That was his last statement. The Lord Jesus Christ. He fell dead. And there's a line in that song that says, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. I've often wondered about that. Did he have a premonition? We are ready for the Lord to come any day or night. We'll love his appearing. So I ask you, 
I mean, we'll just get it down to where it's working now. Have you heard God call you? Are you ready to respond to it? Are you going to say, nah, not right now, you know. It'll be a more convenient time later. Like the old song says, this is the time, oh, then be wise. Amen and amen. This is the time, you're the person, you're at the right place, you're at a place where people love your soul. I, I hope you're picking up on what this church is saying to you by having this meeting. I, I, hope, you, I hope you see it. I hope you can sense it. This church loves me. They want me to go to heaven. They want me to enjoy a good life with the Lord on this earth. They want the best for me. What's wrong with that? When a world is tugging and pulling to pull you down to its own misery and the potential of eternal hell, what's wrong with this church loving you enough to say, please listen to the call of God. Please obey your Lord. Submit to his command to be baptized so you can be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. What's wrong with that? If you're in this audience tonight, and there was a day God cleansed you with the blood of his Son, that was a happy day, right? That was a happy day. They may have even been singing when you came up from that watery grave. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior and my God. Well, may this glowing heart rejoice and tell its raptures all abroad. Happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. That's what they sang when I came up from that watery grave. And it was. It was a happy day. But the one that I anticipate that will be happier is when my Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I've thought at times, what do I want to say to Jesus first time I see him? And I've decided what I want to do, if I, if I may. I want to fall at his feet. And I want to look up and say, Lord... Were it not for you, I wouldn't be here. And I can't really thank you the way you deserve to be thanked. But as much as I can, I want to say to you, I love you for loving me. I love you for dying for me. I love you for taking me to glory. And all praise and adoration, and honor, you deserve forever and forever. And let the angels say it, because the Lord deserves your appreciation and your obedience.